Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 32. My name is Dominic, and my co-host's name is Janice. Today on the show, we will speak to hexologist Hunter Yoder. Hunter is the owner and operator of the Hex Factory in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he is a traditional Germanic hex painter. Graduating from Cutstown University in painting, he worked as a billboard painter and eventually went to New York City to seek his fortune. He worked in the motion picture industry and fine art galleries there for about 30 years in Brooklyn, working for, among others, Andy Warhol and Woody Allen. What are hex signs? Hex signs are Pennsylvania Dutch folk art that depict traditional Germanic motifs which date into antiquity and, as Hunter shows, have inherent magical potential. In today's show, we are speaking about a very specific form of folk art, and it's a very specific people that practice this in a very specific place. So it is the Pennsylvania Dutch in southeast and maybe central Pennsylvania, going up into the northeast a little bit. But this is the mecca for this sort of artwork and folk art. So there's going to be a lot of talk of specific uh, counties and cities in this area. Um, Berks County is mentioned. Hunter also mentions the Cutstown Folk Festival, which is the oldest folk festival in the United States that is in that area as well. And we also talk about a lot of the local artists there who are very well known in the area and with enthusiasts of this particular form of art. We would highly recommend that you go out if you're interested and do some research into this. Um, There's a lot of stuff on the internet and there are quite a few books, including books that Hunter has authored. You can also check out Hunter's website, which is very informative. That's huntermyoder.com Before we get going, I just want to say, as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are extremely generous, and we appreciate it. Uh, Patreon is helping us cover some of the overhead costs of the show, so it's been really great. If you'd like to help us out and keep things going here, uh, feel free to go over to Patreon and do what you can. We also want to say hello to our listeners in South Korea. Apparently, we've been doing well in South Korea, so we're happy to have you listening. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius. May any merits we accumulate doing this work be extended to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Welcome, everyone. We are super excited to have hexologist Hunter Yoder on the show today, and we're going to be talking about magic, art, and the traditions of the Pennsylvania Dutch. So welcome to the show, Hunter. Well, thank you very much. Yes, welcome. Very glad to have you here. Great. It's it's a pleasure. 
Janice and I have been talking about this for a long time, actually, um, ever since we met you a few years ago. And so it's nice to finally uh, make this come together. So to start, because there's a lot to cover, maybe if you don't mind, can you talk a little bit about yourself, how you got into uh, the hex signs, the barn signs in this whole world? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, I grew up uh, outside of Kutztown near a little village called Virginville. And it was on the Maiden Creek in Berks County uh, in southeast Pennsylvania. Uh, and it, the area is a, um, a very central area for the Pennsylvania Dutch culture in this country. And it has a very old history. Anyway, I didn't really know this, any about that when I was growing up, but I was brought up in the culture and um, grew, grew up in a farm. And um, my, uh, my father was a, a dentist. and. Um, one, uh, you know, they, they would have a, a thing at school where your father would come in and introduce uh, his career to the, the class to get them interested. And so my father did it. And then um, uh, Johnny Claypool, a, a, a hex sign painter, he came in and um, I'm like, wow, this is way cooler than being a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I was friends with his sons. Um, uh, Johnny had a, a bunch of uh, sons, and, and uh, they were they're a little on the badass side. Uh, and um, so they also lived outside of Lenhartsville, which wasn't too far from. It was upstream from uh, from Virginville, and in between were a lot of uh, farms with um, hex signs painted on them. Some of them that Johnny had done. And uh, so I was up at Johnny Claypool's place in the 60s, um, and uh, he, he drove around in a microbus and, and uh, he had all these, like, psychedelic-colored uh, hex signs, and I loved it. So I wanted to become an artist, and my, I, I said, Dad, I want to become an artist. I don't want to be a dentist. And he said, well, you want to be a painter? Okay, uh, here's a 40-foot uh, ladder and a bucket of paint and brush, paint the barn. So that was his take on it. It was very Pennsylvania Dutch thing to have your son do, you know, a lot of hard labor, uh, which there was lots to do on the farm. So I painted the house, painted the barn, and then when I got up close, I mean, because these weren't visible, because uh, I guess they had been painted over. When I got up close, I saw these wonderful eight-pointed stars that were weathered into the wood. Um, it's like a relief. It's a very cool thing. Um, so I t asked my dad, "Let's can I paint the hex signs? And he said, well, you know, I didn't want to pay for the extra paint and grumbled about it a bit, but um, I did it anyway. And um, so that, that stayed with me. I've been really doing it ever since. The very first sign, it's an eight-pointed star with droplets. And um, he had... Um, they call them S's, but they were almost like uh, a radiating border uh, on these signs. Other than that, growing up in the culture, the, hearing Pennsylvania Dutch spoken, and going to the the, uh, the Kutztown Folk Festival, which was is like the oldest uh, folk festival in the country, and working there actually because it was a great employment um, as a, a young man uh, to make a couple bucks. Uh, it got uh, pretty well, um, a pretty good, strong dose of it. And of course, being a Yoder, my, uh, my ancestors, uh, two brothers settled in the Oli Valley, which was like maybe 
15 miles away in a very historic area in Berks County. I, it ends up, I mean, I guess um, our family's been running around Berks County for like 300 years. So um, that's amazing. Yeah, that's that's sort of how it worked. Not too many people can say that, um, that, that they have that kind of connection to the land that they live on, especially in America. I was um, about to say the same thing. In America, you don't have ancestral connections of several generations like that. I mean, you're from a from a line of people that have actually rooted in the soil where it, of that area. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's uh, so I'm I'm literally maybe five miles away from where my uh, the there were two Yoder brothers that. Uh, Settled here in Yoli Valley very early on. I'm about five miles from where they're buried. So, that's that's amazing. Hey, can you uh, talk to the audience about Pennsylvania Dutch? Obviously, it's a very specific uh, people, um, and it's very specific to that area. Dutch. I mean, it's it's a little um, maybe confusing because it's not Dutch. Yeah, right. Uh, the, what happened? Um, yeah, the, the confusion. You know, people. People were saying, is it Pennsylvania Dutch? Is it Pennsylvania German? Um, what's with Dutch is just sort of a corruption of Deutsch. And uh, that's not really, that. it seemed like that was the case, but it really isn't. What happened was when they uh, emigrated from uh, uh, the Palatinate, the Paltz in southwest uh, Germany, the Rhine Valley, and also from France and, and all other places, but primarily from that part of Germany, there was really actually no Germany at the time. And um, Germany was uh, just a bunch of little uh, principalities and uh, sort of unified roughly by a German language, although there's there were so many different German dialects that that wasn't really true either. So when they came to, when they were, they were basically uh, either kicked out of Europe or, they left Europe because things were really tough due to the Thirty Years' War and all of the, the nobility in the church sort of uh, squeezing everybody a little too much. Uh, William Penn, he started, he was a Quaker. He was actually um, a Welsh uh, Quaker with connections to the king and got Pennsylvania. And, uh, inviting, of course, Quakers were not exactly... Uh, um, welcome in Europe either, and, and it was a way of getting them out of uh, England. That's why the king did what he did. William Penn was very cool, and he believed in religious freedom, and so he invited these people over, and the you have this situation where these um, people that spoke a German dialect were called Dutch by the English because they the English called anybody who spoke a German dialect Dutch for some reason. And it's interesting because uh, you had these people uh, from Germany who some of them were from France who spoke a German dialect in England, uh, pledging loyalty to the King of England until later when the the colonies left. But um, that was, that was pretty much how, how it happened, uh, and they, the it was convenient for the English to have uh, these uh, people in between them and the uh, the Indians. So the, the 
the Native Americans, which would be the Lenai Lenape, who later on became hostile during the French and Indian War. But the um, so they had these the Germans as a buffer <laughs> between them and the English, um, and uh, and this was also true. In, uh, they also emigrated to South Carolina, uh, uh, Lee Gandy, uh, Dutch Forks. The same idea where the English used the Germans as a buffer between them and the Native American, and also just to you know put a hold on the land. So um, continuing the history lesson, I, I definitely want to talk about, both of us want to talk about powwow too, but um, the symbolism that you see on the barns, I think a lot of people maybe have a superficial knowledge of, of barn signs. Can you tell us a little bit about the misconceptions there and the history there? Uh, what are they? What are they not? Oh, sure. Um, basically, what happened was um, they built these fantastic barns. And um, paint really wasn't used on barns till around 1840. And this, this is late for the, the Pennsylvania Dutch uh, art artifact thing. I mean, they were doing pottery. They were doing tinware. They were doing work, some paper called Fraktor. They were doing uh, furniture. Um, they were doing a zillion. They were very handy people and, and all these signs and symbols were um, on these objects. So uh, finally, 1840, they started using paint on barns. So what are they going to paint on the barns? They're going to, it's like, you can think of it as just a large dower chest. They're, they're going to paint their symbols on the barns as well. And um, they were, uh, I think it was in the, in the, ninth, in the, 19th, the 20th century or late 19th century, um, they were mistakenly called hex signs when they were in the dialect. It was Bluma and Starna or, or flowers and stars. But um, some guy from Connecticut came down and he did a, a travelogue of his travels in the, in the area and he called them hex signs or witches signs. And um, the Pennsylvania Dutch were, uh, you know, they were initially, they were very much, they, you know, they didn't like that. Um, considered witches' signs. They were very unhappy about it. But uh, the name stuck, uh, hex signs stuck, um, barn stars, the things that are actually uh, stars that are painted on barns. It's more accurate to call them a barn star. But this, this confusion went on, but then it was compounded by, I'd say, like in the late 1940s, early 50s, the Kutztown Folk Festival was formed and they showcased many different crafts of the Pennsylvania Dutch, of course, including uh, painting, you know, barn stars, hex signs. And to facilitate the tourist trade and the, and the tourist market, which, you know, we're talking about the post-war boom, everyone was in a car going somewhere and um, uh, they would, you know, travel about on the highways, the interstate highways, highways were being built, et cetera. They invented the, the disc, the uh, painting a hex sign or barn star on discs because they were movable. They could sell it to, um, they could sell them, you know, to tourists or whatever they could be used. So, so actually the, um, the craft uh, was born again. 
And um, you had uh, people like uh, Jacob Zook and uh, Johnny Ott. They, their, their work was a little different. I mean, they were a lot of them were later silkscreen the designs, but um, they incorporated things uh, and symbols and things from Fraktor and some of the other artifacts in the Pennsylvania Dutch culture. So they, they, they sort of took it further, even though it was kind of in a kitschy manner. But um, this was picked up later by uh, people like Ivan Hoyt, um, uh, Lee Gandy, obviously, uh, <clears throat> Johnny Claypool, who took over from, uh, from Johnny Yacht in Lenhartsville. And the, the art form sort of, I mean, and, then, and now today, we have a, a very lively living uh, art form that's going forward, not just reproducing things from the past. And it's interesting because now hex signs, well, you know, with the, the heathen pagan community, like <laughs> hex actually means witch in uh, German, hexerize, witchcraft. Uh, hex is a witch. And so we're like, wow, hex signs, you know, this is, you know, this is okay with us. <laughs> the Christians aren't quite so happy about it. But uh, it, it's interesting because uh, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch would be very, I mean, witchcraft was a real problem. And um, so it, I have this uh, dedicated, uh, my my latest book there, Volk's Frond, uh, it's dedicated to those who do more than just eat bread. That was a very polite way for the Pennsylvania Dutchman to say that the guy practiced witchcraft. I love that. That's so that's so cool. The the folk expressions, and you know what? When you were mentioning the folk festival and how that saw the genesis of it, it's interesting because there's always been a relationship between magic and the mercantile and the marketplace. I mean, they're, 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 because in the marketplace, it's this liminal, magical space. So it almost seems as though the folk festival catalyzed the synthesis of these influences that became manifest in the hex signs because the culture of the PA Dutch, the PA German people, I mean, magic, as you were just mentioning, has been part and parcel of it since before coming to America. I mean, there's, so I'm kind of interested in, you know, cause, cause I think that for the casual listener who might not be aware of this, you know, they might think, Oh, well, this is just something that was, fabricated in the marketplace to sell more hex signs but no no this is like the magical axis in this culture runs deep at least as far as i've studied and it goes back pretty far wouldn't you say that's true you know absolutely i mean any folk culture um has aspects of a folk religion um and the idea of a concept of folk religion is not um, i mean folk religion obviously is you know, it's old as humankind, but the concept of it or the articulation of folk religion was something done by a Don Yoder and his, some of his writings. And they did a lot. There was a lot of interest in, like, I'd say the 20th century, mid 20th century in uh, folk religion. And uh, uh, with any folk religion, you have aspects of, well, I guess you could call it witchcraft, a hex rye. And, uh, and this is just, the way man has always dealt with uh, his environment. It's like a very old way of making his way 
in a successful manner through this world. And um, it's certainly true with the Pennsylvania Dutch. Hunter, can we talk about the symbolism that's found in the hex signs? It seems like it, we're kind of leading into that a little bit. Oh, sure. Because it seems like the symbols are older than Christianity. The Christian uh, Dutch or the Christian Germanic people that carried these symbols incorporated them into their lives, it seems, and even incorporated, I have seen uh, some of the symbols even on churches. But it seems like what you're doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you are saying, yes, let's acknowledge all of that, but let's also celebrate and acknowledge the fact that these things are more than just, uh, you know, quaint symbols. These these have some real power to them that come before Christianity. Is that is that right? Christian, absolutely, yes. Um, my interest, um, well, I mean, I'd have to say that Lee Gandy, uh, his book, Strange Experience, I, I read the book. I'm like, this is just like Berks County here. Um, I don't get how this guy's in South Carolina. Or actually, it seems like it takes place in West Virginia. Um, but this could have been, anyway, he was doing, uh, he, he really is the first one who uh, turned me on to hex signs that had a specific magical intent. And I'm like, wow, because I grew up, I mean, it wasn't like that. Um, they, it was kind of frowned upon. And we're talking about the 60s and 70s uh, in, let's say, Berks County, Kutztown, Kutztown Folk Festival. They, you know, the, it wasn't really good for business. It's still, in some cases, it's not good for business to, you know, be too openly, uh, you know, non-Christian or have, have like a pagan uh, interest in things. I'm, I mean, I, you know, I, I actually, I'd say that being a Germanic heathen has um, in some ways negatively impacted me locally, but it was really the case in the 60s and 70s. It was frowned upon uh, anything to do with witchcraft. And, uh, and it, getting back to the, the the signs and symbols, and Lee Gandy, it goes way back. It goes back. Um, my interest is what in um, Southwest Germany, the Paltznau, uh graves. Uh, uh, they call them Zierschreiben, uh, which were bronze um, ornamental jewelry that they found in the graves. Graves of these people are always facing east. And the Zierschreiben uh, are, you know, they include um, different signs and symbols that um, are like the swastika, the black sun, um, uh, Odin, um, all sorts of stars, multi-pointed stars. And uh, we're talking about the 6th century common era. So there are, you know, you know, the Germanic runes, they, I would say specifically the Algis is found, the Hagalas, Asawilo. These runes were, are you, they find even in, in uh, Berks County, they're in the uh, architecture. You find them in the architecture and, and it was brought over from Germany where it was, uh, you know, they know all about it. Uh, the most interesting thing I found out, I, uh, there's a doctor, uh, Michael Werner, who I interview in my book, uh, Hex Highway, and um, he is a Pennsylvania Dutch enthusiast from Germany. He's got his doctorate, I think, in uh, 
uh, in Pennsylvania Dutch, the language. He's a, a, a language guy. And uh, uh, speaking to him, I, it became, I found out that Pennsylvania Dutch is a dialect that is that was that was formed by the migrate migrating Germanic tribe that settled in the southwest Germany, the Alemanni. So that was pretty much of an epiphany for me, uh, using a Christian term, um, because basically I'm directly making signs and symbols that the Germanic my Germanic tribe, the people that I that were that are my ancestors were doing 600 AD um, and that's a very meaningful powerful feeling to it that it's coming through all those generations it's like a it, it's just it has much more meaning than if let's say I was a Buddhist or I was a was doing Buddhism, even though my ancestors weren't. You know, there, there's that aspect of it. It has a, a power if you're if you have it in your blood, and um, and that's and magic is much more powerful if it is of your ancestry than if it's something that you have uh, acquired in this lifetime. Thank you so much for that. That's great. Um, I I remember I. Last time I was at the Met, I saw a bunch of amazing alemannic, um, like, I guess, jewelry, buckles, brooches, you know, things like, yeah, brooches. Yeah. And they're freaking beautiful. I mean, you have like, you know, gold inlaid with garnets. Oh, yeah. Ravens. It's so awesome. It's awesome. I mean, it's so cool. And when I look at those designs of like the Ravens or the Black Sun design or any of these things, in this ancient metalwork, you can easily see that the patterns that are in the hex signs as being, you could say, uh, symbolically related to that. I mean, it, it's clear that they, they're part of the same sort of uh, symbolic lexicon almost. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's, that's the ancestry through which it traveled. Uh, I mean, you, especially like a rosette would be something that you would see very commonly that goes way, way back. The tulip is interesting because uh, they, they, on their way to the New World, they, they went up the Rhine and through Holland. And about the time that they traveled and, and left on, on the ships from uh, Holland, um, there was what they called the tulip madness. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of this, where um, tulips originated in uh, – Persia, and then they were introduced to Holland, where they still are really big. And um, there was a thing where they, it's, it's, it's the classic collapsing market uh, story where people were uh, borrowing money to buy specific tulip bulbs um, to the point where the market collapsed and people lost everything. It's called the tulip madness. So it's, it's, they use the tulip to represent the lily because the lily is very significant in, uh, in a lot of the mystical Christian uh, sects that came here. But that, that's another, you know, there's, there's all sorts of these things, but the tulip is one and uh, rosette, the heart, 
uh, all this sort of thing. Uh, and uh, also uh, of interest are the unicorns, usually unicorns uh, flanking a tree. You see these on dower chests. Um, and um, I think I might have mentioned this uh, at that event in Wilkes-Barre, but um, it, I found that very interesting because um, that uh, motif of uh, not necessarily unicorns, but like ponies or horse-like creatures flanking a tree goes way back to the Middle East and, and also into uh, probably Indo-European cultures where the tree was actually a goddess and uh, either flanking the, the goddess tree were these unicorns in the case of the Dutch or uh, they called them rampant caprids, like wild ponies uh, feeding from the goddess, the trees of the goddess. And um, so it's just uh, interesting how that has sort of you know, the flow of uh, cultural objects has has been sustained by these kind of images. It's interesting too because then when you see the uh, motif in the Middle Ages in tapestries, for instance, of uh, the maiden with the unicorn, and if we connect it to what you're talking about, we we still see the re- recapitulation of that. Um, Indo-European life and tree goddess, but this time appearing as a quote-unquote virgin maiden who tames the unicorn in the midst of a sacred grove, which is all archetypal symbolism. Yeah, the um, the, the Christians uh, are obsessed with um, the virginity. Um, actually, I think that is where the goddess went. The attraction that Catholicism may have is largely due to the, the, the Mary cult. And uh, I always was fascinated with the Marian, uh, where she would appear to shepherds and stuff like that. And uh, even in Mexico, the uh, like Maria de Guadalupe and the objects that were came out of that or Lourdes. I, I thought, wow, this is like it's it's interesting how with Catholicism they uh, sort of took a, a a pagan cult and made it a universal religion. That was clever. Well, it's in- and it's interesting too because in Gnosticism, uh, Gnostic Christianity, you don't have the sort of fear of woman and her power. And so, in the myths, you have um, Zoe, who's the the spiritual counterpart of Eve, and she's associated with the tree of life. And you know the the root Zo- Zoe uh, is also the root for um, animals, animate life. You know, so so it's that same sort of tree life goddess who's the mother of all all, all the creatures and beings. Yeah, definitely the goddess. Yeah, for sure. And, and that kind of leads me, your mention of Mexico leads me into a kind of an interesting question I want to ask you. Um, so it almost seems like what you do and in the tradition you're you're part of and have found yourself in is really a shamanic tradition. It seems very, and I, you know, I think everyone listening as well as the three of us understand that the term shamanism isn't the greatest term to use, but it's it's probably the most useful term for the set, set of practices and um, 
you know, approaches to the sacred and to the invisible world. But to me, when I see, when I see these things, the magical aspect, the naturalistic component of it, uh, the ancestral connection. And also like when we're talking about Lee Gandhi, especially the spirit working with spirits, it seems very much like shamanism to me. And I just wondered if, um, if you see it that way, and if you approach this path of sort of uh, hex- hexerai and powwowing in a shamanic sense. Uh, well, the, uh, the shamanism, that's gone. I mean, the whole idea of the whole approach and the whole idea of shamanism has gone through an evolution with me personally. And I think with, uh, with the, the heathen culture as well. Um, I originally was very interested in South American Highland shamanism, and I have like I, I have a large cactus collection, and uh, and uh, I have a, a very intimate collection a connection with uh, the um, San Pedro cactus, and also tobacco was 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 a plant, um, the Torah. Uh, ayahuasca it was like the darling of, uh, of the, the new age crowd or still maybe um, and then I think what happened was I I heard of a uh, a Peruvian uh, shaman retreat in um, I think it was somewhere in the Blue Mountains of Virginia and when I heard that they were in the Appalachian Mountains I flew into a rage and um, I, you know, I, because I have like a connection with, with, with the Appalachian um, Mountains. It runs through uh, Berks County and they call it the Blue Mountains or uh, Blue Barrack. Uh, that um, I, and through my plant teacher, San Pedro, I was instructed that the shamanism I sought was in Berks County. And it was of my own culture, and it was where I needed to go with this, uh, you know, to stop this nonsense with, uh, you know, pursuing South American shamanism and get back to who you are, and it's in Berks County, and and that's uh, that's what I did. Um, and now the, the, now it's, it's gotten kind of sticky here using the word shamanism, as you mentioned that shamanism is specific to an area in Siberia, uh, and also to the, uh, indigenous peoples of, uh, of the Arctic area. And I guess it can be applied to what happened to the people, some of the people in the Amazon basin and uh, what the people of uh, the Northern people of, in Europe, it's, it's, it's not shamanism. It's uh, they, they are working with things like with plants, like the Torah is perhaps the oldest uh, entheogen on earth. And, and that, and as well as uh, cannabis, the, um, they find it in graves of uh, of uh, important people in the north. So the approach is is different, and and we don't call it shamanism anymore. So you are 
practicing in a, in a tradition which ha- which goes back very far, which we've mentioned, but you also are innovating. Um, so you're doing this traditional craft, but you've kind of injected it with steroids in a way. Uh, can we talk about your own particular um, angle on on the the hex sign tradition? Well, yeah, that's that's that was a that's a great way of putting it, injecting it with steroids. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it was like 2005 or so, right around the time I was being instructed to to look to Berks County for my magical practices. I was doing hex signs, and I was also, well, let me just say this first. I had a a good friend in, in, in Brooklyn who was a rabbi and he was trying to instruct me with the Hebrew alphabet, which is a magical alphabet. I guess you could say Hebrew, Greek is another magical alphabet and the Germanic runes. And I just, the, the Hebrew alphabet, I, it just wasn't working for me. I work on a very intuitive way, my response to things. But once I saw the Germanic runes, in a book by Idrid Thorson, Northern Magic, I was like, wow. He um, actually had a chapter called Operant Hexology, where he discusses using um, the, the, the connection between um, hexology of the Pennsylvania Dutch and um, Icelandic Galder staves. So I started um, doing more than just recognizing the you know, the fact that they were probably cousins magically, I, I started uh, using uh, Icelandic Gelder staves and, and runes in in my hex signs, either in borders or, or central areas. And uh, as soon as I did that, it was almost like a thermonuclear explosion occurred. And it, it had like a very powerful impact on not only me, but the community of people that I was working with. And, um, and it was like, boom, this being pedal to the metal ever since with that and going further with it nice and now so are the images themselves the power are they enough or with your particular work are you consecrating them what's what's the ritual process for making these i think well my i'm sorry okay go ahead i just wanted to add to what dom's saying i think to clarify his question um would you say that the images are conductors in reservoirs of inherent power or do they need to be charged? Or, or if they are inherently um, powerful, do you still need to go through a process of awakening them? I did contemporary art. I went to school for uh, painting, got a bachelor's degree at Kustan University. And uh, for many years, I, w- um, I was like doing contemporary art. And, um, and then when I got to doing hex signs, I started using these, uh, this new approach and I've, you know, you do things, you do things in in a kind of ritual sense as, as in the making and uh, the thinking that goes into the process, you do it over and over and over again. And over time it changes. And then I began to notice that the thinking and the sort of the ritual procedure in which I go through, people were starting to, they were asking me about it. Like they saw almost the procedure and the process I was going through in the work. And I said, wow, that's really cool. That's how it works. I 
I don't uh, use a bodily fluids or anything like that on I use like for blood I'll use this um, I'll use a cadmium red I won't use actual blood um, it's I you what you get in is the fact that I've touched it and I've done it in many cases the same sign over and over and over again and uh, each time I do it it moves further in a direction I would say I use wood and I go with the grain because I see it almost like a river in which there's like a current and the current takes you to wherever it goes. And um, so I, I would say whatever magical power they contain, it is through a diligent daily practice that I perform on them. Very cool. I was gonna. I was gonna also ask about Fractor, and the um, the influence of Fractor on the development of hex signs. I think because a lot of people know what the hex signs are, and they know, or the the barn stars are. You know, they know that, but I don't think very many people are familiar with Fractor and, and how old its symbolic vocabulary is. Yeah, the uh, Fractor is, um, which means. Um uh, fractured. There's a fractor, uh, German script uh, typeface that's also called fractor. But um, fractor, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And, and actually, it's works on paper, and it's um, it's it's fairly it's old, uh, and it's become very collectible. And the market's really picked up on it. Um, it, it. It could be compared. It's like um, the only. Uh, example in the new world of like illuminated manuscript. Uh, it has that kind of medieval uh, aspect to it. And um, you, lots of birds, lots of flowers, um, hearts, star shapes. They were used on uh, baptismal certificates, marriage certificates, uh, they, or, or just house blessings. Later they were printed, they were mass produced, but the, the ones that are hand printed hand-painted, um, you're talking like Bucks County, Montgomery County, the older counties in Pennsylvania. Uh, it, um, it just has like this uh, um, folk religion uh, vibe that's really um, straight out of the Middle Ages. <laughs> so, I mean, it has, so they, what ha- they ought Johnny Ott in, in Lenhartsville, he, uh, he really um, put hex signs on discs on the path using a lot of these motifs. And a lot of these motifs they used were kind of, I mean, it's kitschy. So you don't really exactly right at the first see the connection between them and the Fractor. But using um, birds and flowers and uh, hearts, these weren't on the barns. These were, this was this was from Fractor, and they ended up on barns later because of of people like Ott and Zook who put them on hex signs. So, I what I've done, and what my wife also she does Fractor work. We've gone kind of back to the actual Fractor. Like, there's this one uh, particular image of uh, the pelican in its piety. It's called. It's a pelican piercing its own breast and evidently they do this in um, in nature 
pelican will pierce its breast and feed its young with its own blood. So this is like obviously has the heavy Christian aspect to it, but it's it's so intense that we use it because of the intensity. And I was told by someone at the Kusan Folk Festival last year, I think it was, that this even goes back further than than with the the German in Germany. This go the Greek. It's an ancient Greek thing with the piercing of the of the breast uh, and the blood. Um, and of course, the use of blood is not exclusively the property of Christianity. Uh, blood is blood is your highest gift. The highest gift you can give is your blood and give it to your the succeeding generations that you bring onto the earth. So it, the power of the of the fractor is is what hits you right away. And you'll see it on pottery too. The same kind of early pottery um, is also a big inspiration and also furniture here in um, the Oli Valley, which is where I am here in, with Boyer Town, right in the entrance to it. Uh, there was a place called Loboxville where um, a beaver uh, produced um, dower chests with the hearts and the unicorns and all these wonderful motifs. And uh, he wasn't even, you know, there's always this misconception that um, these people were German, but uh, he, there was, was French Huguenots uh, primarily at first, and uh, they were from the Alsace. And they left, they were kicked out of France because there, there was a certain point there, uh, there was a decree where if you weren't Catholic, you would be put to death, basically. So um, a lot of the people on the west side of the, of the Rhine jumped over into uh, the Palatinate and uh, lived there for several generations before coming here. And uh, so you have this French Huguenot uh, population, and even it, it's very peculiar because you'll have names like De Turk, which is a, a Huguenot name, but it's actually because there's actually a Turkish connection. <laughs> and, weird. Uh, yeah, it's very weird. And uh, this is, these are the things you, you have this kind of idea of who your ancestors were, but until you really take a look at it, it's stranger than fiction. Right. Hey, would you mind I want, taking a step back to what we were talking about a minute ago, um, the process and the ritual of making your hex signs. It sounds like what you're saying is that you kind of imbue them with your uh, intention. Now, are each when you're making a hex sign, does each hex specific hex sign have its own specific purpose? I mean, for instance, would one be for warding off evil? Would one be for bringing prosperity? And do the symbols that you uh, put on those signs, do they help promote those those ideas? Um, well, usually they include both those, to ward off evil and to promote prosperity. Like we'll use like a, uh, what we call an earth star for uh, a prosperity sign, which is uh, the simplest form would be a four-point star and, and multiples of that, eight, 16. And this simply um, refers to the compass directions. So you have um, the earth and then you may have like a radiating border or, or center, which would be the sun, and you would have droplets, which would make the rain. So this would be for like a prosperity sign. 
we used to say fertility, but people get real nervous when you start talking about fertility. So we just call it prosperity. <laughs> and then usually in the center of those signs, there will be a rosette, which is a six-pointed bloma or flower. And uh, that is a traditional protection sign. And in regards to the magical aspects, um, the, the geometry is really, there's a lot of magic in the geometry. The rosette, if you've ever made one, it, I'll briefly describe how you do it. And it's whenever you do it, it's like magic. You take a compass and you inscribe a circle. Then you take that same compass and put the point any place on the circumference of that circle that you just made. So now the point, the, the pencil part of it will be right directly in the center. And you do you do sweeping arcs across the circle that's made. And every place where the arc touches the circumference, you put the point there. And, and do another arc and you continue around the circle like that and it magically creates this this rosette and just you know this the act of doing that is like powerful and then another way that will use um, you know use the power of, of, of nature is uh, with like uh, plant forms like I'll use um, either a Datura as a popular one, or I'll use um, the uh, henbane flower, or or some some plant that I'm familiar with that has has this this already this uh, this very powerful aspect to it that we use as a metaphor in the sign, and then animals can be used in this way. And so we, you can populate your sign to include these. And, we'll, and then also I'll use uh, think sign painters from the past. I'll reference them in, um, in a sign and uh, in that way use the power of their, their skill in my own work. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I think I remember you saying a few years ago that the direction that the drops are facing can also make a difference or also symbolic of, of different things if they're turning in to the left or if they're turning to the right? A rotational values. You get into rotational values. I have one now. It's a heart on either side of the heart, the, the rounded part of the heart. There's um, uh, a swastika. It's one counter-rotating swastika. And, um, and this I sort of picked up from Gandhi, and then it was sort of it goes back to the, to the Hindu yantra. Um, the one direction is a positive direction, and it gives it gives uh, gives whatever it is that you're seeking. Uh, and the opposite direction takes a, takes it away. And you can use taking away in a positive way, just as you can use giving in a negative way. So, rotational values are very important. I've been asked. People have said, and "It's just hard to believe," but I'll I'll just mention it. They've said. Is there, like, everyone seems, you know, there's, the swastika is always uh, the big, uh, or not, not as much as it used to, but it used to be a real problem. And uh, I've, I've been asked, can you, can you make, like, invent a new sun sign? Um, is there one that we can, that you could maybe make that replaces it? And there isn't. There is not one. It's like, you could say to a Christian, um, you can be a Christian, but can you think you could use a different 
a cross. Don't use that cross. It's offensive. No, there isn't a replacement for this. I'm, you know, there isn't. And I feel very strongly about that. And the sun must rotate and must spin for it to be alive and to work in our universe. And what is uh, numerology? What, what role does that play in your work? Oh, um, well, nine is the perfect number. Um, all multiples of nine, um, if you add them up, like, let's say my favorite being 666. If you add 66 and 6, you get 18, and then 1 plus 8 equals 9. So all, all multiples of 9 operate like this, uh, nine worlds. Um, so we've spoken about four as a, uh, referring to the compass, uh, three, a lot of this stuff comes straight out of Yantra too. Is yantra means sacred enclosure and the simplest enclosure is the triangle or three, the number three. I very rarely use five or seven. The uh, 24 is useful. The Elder Fathark, there's 24. Each one has a numerical value. If you add up all the numerical values, and then add it up gematrically, it adds up to the third rune, which is the thorasas. And the thorasas can be thought of, that's the one usually associated with Thor or Donner in German. That kind of leads us into, into one of the points I wanted to touch on that you had mentioned earlier. Hex signs is called objects. And the alignment of those cult objects to a particular position on the earth or relating to the universe, that's, a, that's intriguing to me. And I was wondering how that, how you, how that works for you. Back in the late 70s, I, was, I had this thing. I, I included it in my book, Heightened Hexology. I wrote a piece back then, believe it or not, like 76, 77, all about location sign devices or LSD. Anyway, I noticed that every time I saw a particularly striking hex sign on the barn, it was in a high point, and the pinnacle, which is the highest point in Berks County, and it's in the Appalachian Range, and it's a very, very interesting place, was visible. So I thought that perhaps these things back then were markers aligning themselves to the landscape. So now, most recently, I've been looking at things like, you know, the, I'm always intrigued with the Bronze Age, and uh, there's this thing called the Nebra disc that they found in a, a part of Germany, Nebra, Germany. And they find that the markings on it indicate the exact angle of the uh, solstice and equinox from that specific latitude, and also the position of the Pleiades to the moon at what quarter the moon would be at a very specific time where, when it was found, you know, they did this, uh, where they, they made all these alignments relevant to not only the landscape, but to the planet and therefore the, uh, solar system universe. And I thought that is so powerful. This is really, really what it's about. And I want more of that. You know, I want to, I want to move more in that direction. There's like 39 holes on the circumference of this disc, and they can actually use it as kind of a tracking the, the, the position of the planets, Mars, Venus, and Mercury. 
I I've been incorporating the Pleiades in my some of my work and in uh, the North Star and uh, and I, I want to include more and more of that because I I think that really you know adds that extra you know blast of steroid to the work. Now, Hunter, w- regarding the Pleiades, um, how are you incorporating it, and what's the relationship with Maya, the mother of Hermes, um, who? You know, Hermes was associated across most of mainland Europe with Odin for a long time. It wasn't just the Interpretatio Romana, but it seemed to have been a pretty consistent association. So it's kind of interesting when you're mentioning the Pleiades. Um, But Maya was maybe the most prominent of the Pleiades. And I was wondering if you have have, uh, um, incorporated any sort of reference or relationship to her in that work. Well, Maya is interesting because um, it is the brightest star of the seven, uh, the mother of, as you say, um, Hermes. He's like the the classic psychopomp, and uh, as well as Odin, as you mentioned. But although I'm maybe a stretch that that connection, but what I find interesting is in in the language, um, the, the month of May is after Maya. The the English word maiden is from Maya, Mademoiselle, um, and that um, the, the holiday Beltane in the Celtic uh, May Day, which is also very important with the, with, for the, the Germanic peoples, uh, especially the night before, is a festival of uh, maidens and the Maypole. I actually participated in the Maypole locally here and uh, at the Potts Grove Manor, which is a... Uh, it's just like a historic society. They they have like a, a May first holiday, and uh, and so actually participating with the Maypole, where again it's like it's rotational. One at first, you you everyone has a garland that you go about in a circular direction, and it wraps around the pole. And then to finish the ceremony, you do go in the opposite direction. So, you know, again, it's this sort of like has this goddess, the fertility pole is kind of uh, phallic and, and, and the feminine is wrapping around the phallus. This is really a symbolic ceremonial folk activity is, 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 is like fundamentally important and of interest to me. You know, that really is interesting to me because I feel like you just tied back into earlier in our conversation with the with that tree goddess because the the maypole could also be considered to be a symbolic tree that at the same time is vertically rooted in the pole star or or even the pleiades and so the circular movement around the maypole could represent the motion of the of the stars around the fixed star of the pole star which creates the cosmic axis of the goddess who is the world tree so it's really interesting to me because i feel like it just kind of all linked up to me in this conversation where you're going here and you're going there and I'm starting to kind of see your vision here. And I'm wondering if uh, any of this vision has come from your sacred plant teachers, like, um, like the cactus or like the datura. Yeah. I, I think really, uh, I mean, people see um, mostly my uh, hex sign work, but I'll, I'll like on a lot of my social media places like Instagram and uh, on Facebook or, and whatever. I, I, the gardening is like an essential aspect of, uh, of what I do. And another big one is the elderberries. Anyway, I have elder 
uh, bushes and they call them trees, but they're kind of bushes. But uh, it's a very important plant for the Pennsylvania Dutch. And you can just tell from the name elder. I mean, it's kind of a peculiar name for something. Uh, but uh, the elder is is the, is the goddess, and um, she is a goddess of the hearth. But she's also kind of has a dark side. And, and in Scandinavia, uh, she there's this uh, thing, um, this fable where a young maiden falls into a well and comes into a whole like different world and goes walking through like a forest and comes to a house. And there's an, an old lady there and she, an old lady says, you know, uh, live with me and, uh, and uh, clean my house and help me out here and uh, I will reward you. And uh, so she does and she does, does, prospers quite well. And then and she's allowed by the goddess to return to, uh, to her home, to her mother her mother's delighted to see her and her other daughter who sees how well she's done. Uh, this is the lazy, fat, lazy daughter <laughs> goes down into the well and doesn't and, fi- and finds the house and the goddess, etc. but doesn't really help out with chores and, and work and is, revo- is, is rewarded in kind, shall we say. The, so the, the elder is a, an essential part of the Pennsylvania touch culture. I have in my book, there are quotes from there's uh, numerous folk tales in which uh, elder staffs were used in witchcraft or, or were symbolic of witchcraft. And we, uh, we use it. We, we pick the berries. We make uh, a jam. You can also make a mead. And, and now they are finding that it has uh, these wonderful antioxidants that uh, are antiviral. So it's a very useful thing. And uh, this is one of many plants, but uh, there's going to be a uh, Frau Hala hex in my mind now. It's been a long time. I usually use the actual part of the plant as an, as an inspiration. It gives it that, that realness, that genuineness. From, from what it is I'm using to, to depict. Oaks, another one, oaks are also used very traditionally by the Pennsylvania Germans, but uh, the oak was um, the wood of Thor or Donner. And uh, in the culture, and they, they don't even know why, but whenever there's like a thunderstorm in the summer, they refer to it as Donnerwetter or Donner's weather. They, you know, they've forgotten who Donner was but it still exists in their language, which is intriguing. There's a lot of that sort of thing that we we don't realize is to be true. I mean, I've, I've heard that like uh, court cases and elections are always held on Tuesdays or Tears Days. And Tear was the, the god of, of justice. He had his, was missing a hand. And um, the wolf god. And this is from the north, as is Wednesday, which is Odin's Day, Woden's Day, uh, Thursday is Thor's Day, Friday's Freak. So let's see what are the plants. Plants are amazing, and uh, they there's a hierarchy, and uh, and I uh, used to have a lot more uh, uh, poisonous plants, but now I've got with the children uh, it's primarily for food, and we've done quite well. Peppers, uh, tomatoes, uh, kale. We've been eating, you know, we eat from the garden maybe five to seven months out of the year. That's awesome. 
And anybody who's familiar with your work will be familiar with the the Detura imagery that you have been putting on it, which is really beautiful. I also had a question about a lot of the uh, designs are quite psychedelic. Now, is a, a lot of the geometry, is that a traditional, are those traditional designs or did that come around in the 60s? Well, I always, I asked um, Eric, I mean, um, Johnny, I mean, it was back in the late 60s and um, let's say me and and, and the, the Claypool clan, we, we smoked a lot of weed back then. Anyway, uh, I'm like, whoa, this is... <laughs> Just <laughs> working, you know. I mean, I want to do this, you know. I mean, you know, I grew up, maybe I could be do this, and uh, I. So I always tend to go for that. I mean, uh, Milton Hill has a barn star that he's famous for, which has that blue kind of fade border to it, and I love that. But uh, I think I I also grew up when I was like in grade school, op art came in and I loved op art. And I still love op art. So I, I can't speak for everyone else, but um, it's definitely an influence on me. I, I, I love uh, like even posters, San Francisco's, they, you know, from the, from back in the day, the posters for the, the acid rock um, concerts and, uh, but uh, I mean, the geometry is very powerful. Uh, there's, um, you know, it move, if it moves, it uh, it it works, you know. So we love it. Uh, and then black and white, I don't know. Just love the black and white. And I have a lot of people like a lot of these images that I've maybe just transposed. I like this, like to make it its most basic, you know, black and white. It's like zero and one. Let's just do it in zero and one. And um, it just, I don't know, tickles my pineal gland or something. <laughs> I have to say, when I when I first saw your art a few years ago, I was totally blown away. I mean, immediately I, I had to buy a few pieces, and it's amazing the variety. I mean, it's it's so hard to choose when you when you look at like your website, for instance. If you're gonna try to choose one of these pieces, they're all so unique uh, and beautiful. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's really uh, you've really taken this to a, an interesting place. Janice, you, I think you were going to say something. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question or two about the practice of powwowing. Um, I, I've, in my studies of it, I, it seems to be that at least in some circles, it was considered to be something that had to be passed down from male to female and from female to male. Do you think that's necessary or do you think that's like a cult- cultural vestige? It does seem like there's a, it does seem like that's something that happens in other cultures with the transmission of magical power uh, as well in, in these indigenous practices. Um, and, and I was also wondering, uh, kind of going along with that, do you draw a distinction between Brockerai and Hexerai or do you consider them to be two sides of the same coin? Well, uh, I, I, my first book, uh, The Backdoor Hexologist, I uh, was in a group and it was, uh, includes a lot of, uh, of the Brockerai. Uh, there was a Jesse Tobin, um, and they were practicing uh, Brockers and they actually had a connection, uh, you know, an ancestral connection, uh, a Frunschaft. And um, I honestly, 
after it had a Christian aspect to it because they, that's what it, what it is, I really left it there when I sort of switched over to um, uh, polytheism. But I will say that in terms of the male-female transmission, uh, having a little bit more familiarity with, let's say, sex magic, that uh, there's a there's definitely a magical power in a male-female, female-to-male uh, transmission than than uh, than you might find it normally. But you know, it depends on the individual too. I mean, uh, let's say I think. Um, uh, Lee Gandy, his uh, his uh, mentor, uh, Jack Montgomery, and uh, I think uh, Jack looked at it. I mean, Lee was a homosexual, so you know, it really just really works the way it works. And they might have, in some point, I've seen that where they formalize it, where it has to be, you know, can't be transmitted unless it's male to female, female to male. I wouldn't say that's true. In terms of hexerai, hexerai is um, is uh, was considered by the Pennsylvania Dutch, and um, and they were very Christian people as uh, evil, as the works of the devil, and um, they, uh, you know, to this day, it's a it's a problem with uh, witchcraft for them, and and. Uh, uh, Hexerai is would be just a uh, reversion to a more polytheistic pre-Christian uh, response. It's it's a general term. There's no specific part to it, but I would not. I have no claims to be any expert on Brokerai. There, there's quite a few other. I mean, it was like the darling. At least ten years ago, there was a lot of stuff that came out about it, um, and even now, uh, there's 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 books that come out about it. Uh, but it's just like a sympathetic, magical approach to uh, um, healing, and uh, it's positive in that sense. But it's not my specialty. So it almost sounds like um, kind of par for the course with with uh, mainstream. Christianity, the Hexerai, since Hexa really in German means witch, um, really it refers, if you go back to the true meaning, it would refer to the indigenous practices of uh, indigenous magical spiritual practices of Germanic folk, um, which has been, which was then demonized by the Christian perspective into something evil. Um, you know, and that, like I said, that's that's just consistent with the way that the sort of uh, approach of the Christian authorities have been toward indigenous people. Well, and but now it's being recalibrated. So, it's, you know, these things are living things. It's not just set. The, the definitions aren't set. Uh, Hexerai is now being recalibrated to accommodate the uh, belief systems of. Uh, the emerging um, heightened or pagan population that we have now. Uh, and uh, it, I, my view of it isn't uh, negative or evil. And I think that's a positive motion too. That's a good movement. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And, and we found that, like you, even somebody, you, uh, Silver Raven Wolf, uh, she'd be one that she would have, she doesn't really see it, but as a Wiccan, the Wiccan, Wiccans who sort of embraced the, the Pennsylvania Dutch magical traditions prior to the, uh, the, the Germanic heathens. Um, and now us, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's occurred recently. And, and you know, the spiritual spiritual things evolve culturally, and uh, that's that's one of them. You could also say it's like ancestral memory that's reemerging now that it has the space to do so without being uh, attacked or oppressed. I mean, the, it's clear that the memory of the folk doesn't die, and it comes back; it lives. Yeah, I I mean. My response to a lot of things is just through uh, intuition. It's sort of like a genetic memory. And, um, and I, you know, you sort of try to develop that and trust it more and more. And like, it's been, and it's not something that you would be able to predict just as your own, the actual uh, aspect of your own ancestry isn't as you might have thought. I mean, I always had an interest in like, uh, working with marble and uh, mosaic and uh, and uh, tile work and this is very um this is not <laughs> i mean i grew up working with wood so my own interest in doing this and also interested in doing beekeeping it's just like you just have to go with sort of your intuition and uh, and you know that now i'm finding out that i large part i mean my middle name is maurice i have a lot of uh, of the french huguenot uh, blood in me you know and also with food food's another way to go if you're you, you have a genetic inclination towards food in certain ways it's i think it it's it's very telling of of where your where your genes may be you know, I, I, you know, you know, more of a Mediterranean style food, and, and, and then I'm finding out that like in southern Germany, there it's it's you know they have fig trees, and they have, it's it's a warmer climb than than what we're what you're normally led to believe in terms of Germany and north in the north. So it's it's an ongoing experience, and and life, that's what life is, and it, it, your your idea of what you are, or where you came from, is constantly um evolving so that makes me wonder um before we start wrapping up um, we mentioned lee gandy a few times and he seems to have been a, a big influence what was his background how did he what was his influence what influenced him to kind of go in that direction do you have any ideas oh yeah absolutely uh, i like i said when i read the book i'm like what the hell is this this can't be west virginia or south carolina and the same people, the same diaspora of the uh, Germanic folk, at the same time, uh, there was a strong connection between uh, Pennsylvania and uh, South Carolina. He uh, takes place in Dutch Fork. And uh, it was interesting at the folk festivals, we get all these people up from the South, from the Carolinas, South Carolina, North Carolina. And they, you know, there's vet in Virginia, they're, they're, were pockets of the quote-unquote Pennsylvania Dutch all the way down through there. And uh, so he was out of Dutch Fork. I included uh, a lot of uh, strange experience, some of my favorite chapters in my book, Der Volksfront. Um, I, I, 
I contacted the publisher and I gave him the ISBN number and said, you know, was asking permission to use, use, you know, certain parts of the book. And they like, I think the company had changed hands and they're like, what book? We don't have any record of this book. I'm like, Oh, okay. That works for me. And so I used it. Uh, there was this one thing, the, um, the web right heresy. <laughs> it's a great chapter. And in which uh, they, they they talk about the connection with there's a, a, a pastor Muhlenberg who was a, a big guy in the Lutheran Church anyway coming down to the Carolinas and his influence there anyway it was a, it's a, a fascinating tale the Weberite heresy heresy uh, they end up um, pretending that they're Jesus Mary and Joseph and they they sacrifice. A, humans <laughs> and they're they're stripped bare to the waist uh, doing uh, ceremonies around a huge bonfire in the middle of the woods i'm like this works for me anyway uh so gandhi's tradition his he's a, he's a self-styled hexenmeister but he comes from a long uh, a tradition evidently in his family of of being uh, hexes uh, that it traveled through the family, and um, and and you'll find that in many cases. Was there a powwow connection with him and his family that you know of? He he did healing. I'm not quite sure if he called it a powwow, but he 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 did use healing. What was very interesting about him and his hexine work, he would not like you know he won't put it up in a barn. He he would. Do it inside a closet and have it hidden and have a spe- interesting specific intention, and then it would work. That's how things work is uh, like that, you know. So with mine, I tell people, you know, like uh, they say, "Well, what does this one mean? What does this mean?" I give them the general, you know, the basic symbology involved, and I said, "But it's up to you to put your intent into it if you want to use it in that manner." somewhere where that works for you that you can either see it and focus on your intention or or keep it hidden away cool so i think we are getting to the end of the conversation this has been awesome and it's really hard to talk about this kind of um visual art in this audio format um so i would highly recommend people go look for themselves i think they'll be blown away by what they see because i don't think many people are very familiar with this style of art form um before we go janice did you have anything else no i just wanted to thank hunter uh for coming on it was immensely uh it it was immensely interesting and uh educational and fun to talk to you um and again you know this is part on our on our podcast we try and keep a balance between scholars and practitioners and you know, we have a picture here in Hunter of a of a living practitioner of, of somebody carrying forth tradition, who's clearly who's clearly also uh, scholarly too. Because I mean, it's obvious that 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 Hunter's done a lot of study and research into the history of this. So, I think that that's important because today a lot of people come to things through a commercial avenue where they think that they have to go by books or they have to go by you know, or they, they can just pick up something and because they bought it, use it. But that's these things are living continuous traditions in one way or another. 
There's times when they may be active. There's times when they may be more passive. And, but they're always present, these indigenous traditions. And I, I'm really honored to have an exponent of, of an indigenous tradition uh, discuss that here on the show. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun. So where could people find you? What is, what is the website? And, and your wife also is quite a talented artist. She does she some beautiful work. So if you can maybe give Absolutely. a plug for, for your website, her website, and anything else you'd like. Well, I'm on at huntermyoder.com, huntermyoder.com, or thehexfactory.com. And also I'm on uh, Instagram on uh, um, the Hex Factory and Facebook under Hunter M. Yoder in the Hex Factory. Uh, and my wife, who does a lot of wonderful fractal work and more and more hex sign work, is uh, Rachel E. Yoder dot, uh, net or Rachel E. Yoder art dot net. And she's also on uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook and uh, her work is, is, is quite different and it's, we, we uh, complement each other and it's, we have fun bouncing stuff off each other. We've had a rough year this year because of everything being shut down, but uh, through the wonderful crystal ball we have now in each and everybody's home, the, the internet, we've been able to um, do okay on social media and on podcasts like this. So I want to thank you guys for having me on. It really helps. It was great. I want to mention too, really like your art is amazing and literally like Rachel's art is super cool too. I, I, I love the Wasser Nicks. I, th- I just, it, it's crazy to me that the Pennsylvania touch have a mermaid as part of the folk culture. I mean, that's got to go back far. Well, that's an interesting question. And we wondered ourselves, I'm like, what is this mermaid doing? And uh, it ends up that these Wasser Nicks, they inhabit it. Uh, like springs, streams, and rivers. And there was, they were concerned about them, and you'll often see them on baptismal certificates. They wanted to have the child baptized before uh, a Vassarnix would snatch the child and replace it with a changeling. Hmm. That's kind of, kind of a theme you find in a lot of cultures, uh, folk tradition. Yeah, the North, the Icelandic, you know, I think they have something like that too. But the Vos- And then also, you know, it comes from uh, the Lorelei on the Rhine, that, you know, that song, the maidens that would try to lure the the, uh, the sailors onto the rocks. So they're tricky. You're going to watch these uh, Vosvenixes. <laughs> cool, man. Well, thank you very much once again. We appreciate it uh, a lot. This has been fun and informative and uh, educational. My pleasure. Max good. All right, that was Hunter Yoder, hexologist, the Hyden hexologist. We're excited to have had him appear on our show. Dom and I first saw him speak at a seminar, uh, although I had been a longtime uh, fan of his work before then, um, as I think maybe Dom has too. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, seeing his hexes in person is really cool. Um, the bright, vibrant colors he uses, the uh, geometric patterns, there is something inherently magical about it. I particularly like his integration of runes into his hexes too, uh, keeping it again within the same 
symbolic vocabulary and cultural matrix. And there are types of magic that work. I mean, if you think about it, magic is a language and languages languages are born of a sort of lexicon of symbols. And these magical languages, if you understand them, uh, they actually broaden, they become wider. You can have a place of ingress. And then when you explore it more, it just keeps going deeper. This is It's like that with art too. And I like the intersection in his work between art and magic. And it's something that my whole life has been an interest of mine and a passion of mine is, is where art and magic meet, where one becomes the other and the other becomes the other. Um, you know, is art magic? Is magic art? Or is there a separate dimension? I think these are good questions, interesting questions. I know that art affects everyone. And so if you think of magic as a, as a form of immaterial effectiveness or the ability to influence minds and even souls, well, what better way to do so than to clothe the intentionality in an art form? And that's why I think that art has an inherently magical character to it. So that when you have art that is intentionally magically created, you have an especially powerful vehicle for uh, causation and change and transformation. And I see that in Hunter's work. He's also drawing on generations past of, of really deep-rooted uh, symbols that and many of them are naturalistic. So on one hand, there is an inherent, there is an ancestral component to it. And on the other hand, there is a naturalistic component that draws on uh, the energies of nature in the form of flowers and plants and animals, and as well as um, elemental influences such as raindrops and uh, fiery fiery images and uh, even earthly earthy images so we have elements we have ancestral components we have uh, naturalistic influences from plants and animals so all of those things are animate alive and you bring them together in an organized fashion it creates a pattern that influences reality so i i think the hexology the the Hexcraft is a perfect example of a modern, I don't want to say modern, but a, uh, a recently developed magical form, which developed on its own innately, organically over time. Um, it's something that just sort of emerged from a deeper unconscious reservoir that goes back much further. And this was an inspiring episode to me. I was excited to discuss these things with him. And I love the fact that he is an ongoing uh, enthusiast of entheogens as well. Again, you see that shamanic component, which is, I think, inherent to the process and experience of many human beings who begin to explore the magical dimensions of reality. Yeah, nicely said. And no, I, I did. I was not familiar with Hunter before we saw him a few years ago in person, but... Um... Yeah, I was very much impressed with him then and as well as now. Uh, it is pretty awesome to have access to someone who does have that direct connection to such a, an old tradition. I mean, uh, I was blown away to hear about how deep his ancestry goes with this stuff. And 
his work is is really neat because he's taking it back to uh, its roots. Uh, for a long time, the symbols I think were sort of benign. Uh, they were hidden in plain sight, and they were everywhere in that area. But he's bringing back the power of those images um, for maybe what what they were intended to be used for originally. So looking at his art is kind of like a little time machine back to a certain ancestry of of humans and their symbols and what they were using for their magic and for their ritual. Uh, so it's really cool to have that direct line, and I really like what he's doing. It's it's super interesting and. You know, for people listening, you just have to go look at it. You have to check out his website. Talking about it's not going to do it justice. And the thing is, it's like art. Art branches off. It goes in different directions. An artist might be part of a certain school, but their expression of the ethos of that school is going to be different than another artist who may have even trained alongside them. And then on top of that, art forms develop into newer art forms. Art forms mutate. Uh, Art music, uh, creativity, and magic also should be understood this way as an ongoing living process. These things are not fossilized and stuck, but when they are engaged with, they are dynamic and alive and change. And the thing is, making art changes you. Just as you create something, you're also creating yourself. And it's the same with magic. And so making up magic, doing magic, exploring magic, it causes a revelation of the self and a transformation of the personality. But these transformations also occur in the external world as well. So there's there's a really interesting process, I think, that goes on there. And we have to be willing to flow and adapt and grow. And I see that in Hunter. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so overall, great stuff. Um, please go out and check his his stuff out. Like we mentioned, we'll give some of those websites after our book review, which is what we're moving into now. So, All right, so following on the heels of discussing hexology with the high-then hexologist Hunter Yoder, who I do want to mention has several books under his belt. They're all really interesting and worth exploring, and the books have different contents, and you know, some, some are interviews, some are... Uh, technical, more technically oriented, but but all of his books sort of aim at um, documenting a living tradition. But uh, moving on from that, I also want to mention another book which d- uh, relates back to this tradition that we were describing today, uh, and that hails this tradition that hails from Eastern Pennsylvania, and uh, before that Germany. Uh, this book's called the Red Book. It was written by a guy named Christopher Bellardi. It is the Bible of pennsylvania dutch folk magic there is there has never been a book on the subject more comprehensive than this i mean you will learn from this book everything there is to know historically about the development of this form of magic he christopher billardi he fully explores and goes into the history of the different um different religious groups, mostly Protestant, but not only, that settled in the area, uh, you know, of Eastern Pennsylvania that were mostly of abstraction, including, you know, Mennonites and Amish and uh, even old believers and all kinds of stuff, Moravians. And uh, he, so he, you get a really, you get a really long, deep, interesting history lesson about that. And it's important because it helps you to understand 
the culture, the religious culture of the uh, German settlers, the Dutch, which really comes from Deutsch, German, MPA. But then in addition to that, he also discusses the magical influences, such as, for instance, um, the Faust books, which uh, produced the uh, sixth and seventh books of Moses, um, and other other magical influences that contributed to the tradition of uh, of magic that's that's practiced in this area of the country. Um, he goes into the Long Lost Friend and other similar books to the Long Lost Friend, such as Albertus Magnus's Egyptian Secrets. Even and he also has a large amount of technical information in the book for anyone interested in exploring and in implementing some of the techniques of Pennsylvania German folk magic. Um, now, this is traditionally a series of practices that are passed from uh, teacher to student, but uh, especially practicing magicians who may be comfortable and experienced with folk magic, I think would uh, be able to pick up a lot from this book uh, just in the area describing the techniques alone. There's a lot focused on healing uh, as well as house uh, blessings in the form of Himmel briefs, which are magical letters and all kinds of other interesting things. Uh, this book is large. It's a brick. It's literally probably the size of a Bible, just about. It's amazing. Uh, I learned so much from it and you know, it's really a legend when it comes to this subject. So if you're interested in Germanic magic, Pennsylvania, uh, quote unquote, Dutch folk magic, mystical healing, or even just the history of the Germanic people in America, um, you know, please check this book out. It's well worth it. It was published by Pendrake Press. I believe it is still in print. If not, you can find a copy for a fairly reasonable price. And again, it's worth it. it. I should also mention that anyone interested in uh, Christian forms of magic will find this very interesting because this is primarily a Christian practice, although in recent times, people like Hunter and others, such as the community um, who practice Urglawe, uh, have taken it in a more um, non-Christian, pagan uh, direction. And I think that's entirely valid as well. Yeah, uh, I agree. It's an awesome book. Very well researched, very thorough, and it is, in fact, still available. Um, I saw it recently on Amazon for about $25. So uh, for its size and the density of information inside, that's quite a value. So yeah, maybe hold off on that, you know, quarto sewn, uh, jackalope leather, you know, flip book you've been thinking of buying that's like $7,300 in, in an edition of only 93 and instead spend $25 on a book that you can keep coming back to for education and practice for the rest of your life. But Janice, that leather-bound limited edition, it's, it's a limited edition. There's only 200 copies being printed. Yeah, they make good supports for the armchair, I guess. <laughs> okay, the name of the book again. I think you said the Red Book. The oh, beginning. the red shirt. The red book is by Carl Jung, which is also worth getting, which is also a large book, a larger book actually, than the Red Church, but still a great book. No, I meant the Red Church by Christopher Bellardi. Really, just great book, interesting book. So, if you found today interesting, if you're interested, if you're a Christian magician or a Germanic, somebody interested in Germanic magic or mysticism, or somebody interested in the intersection of art and magic, or 
any of the things we discussed today, check this book out. Uh, check Hunter's website out. Check his books out. Buy his hex signs. They're cool as hell. Even if you're just into art, they're really cool. I'm telling you, you'll see it. You'll know what I'm talking about. His wife, uh, Rachel Yoder, also makes really cool art. She makes hex signs too, as well as some other um, folk art based on Fracter, which we discussed in the episode. Her art is really complementary to his, but of a different flavor, kind of brings a feminine touch to it. And I think there's a touch of a 60s influence on her art too. Really neat stuff, really talented people. And in this time of COVID, uh, you'd be supporting artists who rely on their artwork to support their family, which is pretty cool too. Yeah, good point. Hunter's a family man and, you know, artists are getting hit pretty hard right now. So it is nice to support them. Um, His books are Der Volksfreund. Hex Signs, Folk Tales, and Witchcraft of the Pennsylvania Dutch, which is his newest one. Uh, then he's also got The Backdoor Hexologist, Nine Worlds of Hex Magic, Hayden Hexology, Hex Highway, and like Janice said, check out his website. That's huntermyoder.com, as well as hexfactory.com, and his wife is at rachelyoder.net. As for us, you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and you know all those other places so please support us as well rate us and review us on itunes that helps us out as always thank you very much for listening we appreciate you this is a labor of love and we are grateful for everybody who um, feels that they're getting something valuable out of it absolutely thank you for listening